0: It's Christmas, 1990. Chris Howarth and Noel Hawkins are celebrating, drinking with some friends. A few nights earlier, they had battled a freak storm to bring £100 million worth of Colombian cocaine into Scotland. The mastermind behind the importation, Julian Chisholm, allows his gang to spend the holidays with their families as the cocaine sits on a beach at Clashnessy Bay. But then, in the new year, it's time to get to work. Around the same time, Graham Dick, the customs officer investigating the gang, receives a tip. Julian Chisholm's cocaine was still in Scotland. Here's Graham Dick.
1: The one thing we had in our favour was that we knew that Davy Forrest and Ian Ray would be used to take the drugs down to London. And they hadn't moved. They were still at home. And that was the thing that gave us hope.
0: The transport crew, made up of Ian Ray and David Forrest, we're ready to move. The plan was to drive down to London, where Chisholm had already organised London gangs to buy the cocaine. But heavy snow in the north of Scotland has meant all roads out of Ullapool are closed. It gives Graham the time he needs to stop them. It's a race against the clock. Graham Dick and the police versus Julian Chisholm and his gang. One group trying to escape Alapil, the other trying to prevent an unprecedented amount of cocaine from spreading across the country. I'm investigative journalist Brendan Duggan, and from the Courier and the Press and Journal, this is Hunting Mr. X. The true story behind the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history, and the man who masterminded it all, Julian Chisholm. Episode 4, The Bright Orange Van. On the 5th of January, Chris Howarth's break is interrupted, when he gets a call from Julian Chisholm, who tells him that he is going to help collect the cocaine the following evening. Howarth has done his part, but he has only been paid 3 grand out of the 150 he was promised. Chisholm, always wanting to get his own way, tells Howarth that if he wants the rest of his money, he needs to help finish the job. On January the 6th, a day after getting his orders from Julian Chisholm. Chris Howarth makes his way to the Dunroman Hotel in Bonar Bridge, about an hour outside Ullapu. Here he meets the transport team, Ian Ray and David Forrest, and the three of them plan how they're going to collect the half a ton of cocaine without raising any suspicions. The weather has cleared up now, but the drugs have been at Clashnessy Bay for over two weeks. It's now or never. Staff members at the Dunroman Hotel spot the three sitting around a map, studying it, planning their next move. Later, staff members notice the gang leave before dawn at around 3am. David Forrest has rented a van from a company in Forfur called Baxter's. It's a bright orange van and it stands out not just because of its colour but the company name on the side of the van that clearly indicates that it's from Forfur and not local to Ullapu. They drive to Kleshnetty Bay and load the bales of cocaine into their orange van. With everything set. Haworth tells Ian Ray and David Forrest that the two men should take the long way back to Ullapool, where there'll be less police activity, but they ignore him. Haworth heads home, his part of the job finally done. He has yet to be paid, but soon a paycheck will be the least of his worries. Later that morning, at around 7am, Sergeant Mike McLennan of the Northern Constabulary leaves his home in Ullapool for a training course in Inverness. Sergeant McLennan is the local Bobby around Ullapool so he's been asked by Graham Dick to look out for anything suspicious. As he's driving out of Ullapool, Sergeant McLennan spots something suspicious on the side of the road.
1: And it was purely by chance that he was going down to Inverness early in the morning and he saw this van in Corishella Gorge. And it was suspicious and there were two guys there, so he radioed it in and it went to Ullapool, it went to Dingwall and it came to us.
0: Sergeant McLennan gets in touch
1: with Customs and reads out the
0: name on the side of the van. Baxter's self-drive in Forfer. Just 45 minutes later, officers are knocking on the door of the van's owner, asking who was renting the van. Looking at the records, the police find that the van is being rented to David Forrest. The gang had completely failed to blend in or cover their
2: tracks. Here's investigative reporter Dale Haslam. They didn't even use a fake name, you know, to to hire the, the van. Um, And, I mean, you're talking... The biggest cocaine importation in the history of the uk and they use a bright orange van with the name of the hire company in the back it's just it's absolutely um amateur hour you know it's like home alone criminals from that point on the whole thing was just doomed
0: it's the opportunity graham deck has been waiting for it must be how they're transporting the drugs
1: and we were speaking to all of the police forces in the area and we put checkpoints on every road leaving the northwest of Scotland, um, down the Caledonian Canal, down Loch Ness, um, and even further down south towards Auburn. But the prime choke point was Maryborough. And um, we knew we were gonna find them. We were confident we were gonna find them.
0: At this point, Chisholm had already promised the product to a gang in the city of London, Ray and Forrest were on their way to deliver the cocaine. Then, at around 9.20 a.m., after tailing the van for over an hour, Graham gets enough feet on the ground to raid the van. Police surround it and arrest Ian Ray and David Forrest. They bust open the bright orange van to discover the cargo is not what they expected. Remember, at this time, police still believe that it's a cannabis importation.
1: When they were stopped and the van was opened, we could see a midi later that. It wasn't two or three tons. It was maybe about half a, half a ton. The stash Graham finds in relation to the street value of cannabis
0: is not a lot. But this isn't like a movie. Graham doesn't take out a knife and cut open the bales there and then. So for now, he has no way of knowing the truth of what he's just uncovered. Instead, the van and the drugs are sent away for forensic testing. Graham doesn't just wait around, however. Later that morning, police raid the home of Chris Howarth and arrest him. In his home, they find poems about a ship, about its cargo, as well as doing time in prison. They then arrest Noah Hawkins and Robbie Burns. By the end of the day, all five members of Julian Chisholm's gang are arrested and sent to Porterfield Prison in Inverness. The next day is when the London forensics report to Graham that the cargo wasn't cannabis at all, but half a tonne cocaine. Graham has hit the jackpot.
1: Astonishment. But then it started to make sense. The fact that we hadn't seen them in Spain, the fact that the shear hadn't moved, the fact that the Eastray hadn't moved, the fact that we hadn't seen any um, suspect vessels coming up into the North Minch, the fact that they had sometime, sometimes, it became clear that Chris and Noel must have come from a region where they could have picked up half a ton of cocaine.
0: Operation Klondike is more success than he could have ever imagined. 500 kilograms of cocaine from the notorious Calais cartel. This amount of cocaine was so close to being on the streets and it was stopped just in time thanks to the work of Operation Klondike. Now it was time to make sure those responsible paid for it. In the spring of 1991, three months after their arrest. Gillian Chisholm's transport team, Ian Ray and David Forrest, are called to the High Court in Edinburgh. The two men plead guilty to cocaine dealing. Forrest is given 10 years, whilst Ray is given 7. The Crown Prosecution accepts their pleas because they want the two men's testimonies to be used in the trial of the importation team. That's the trial of Chris Howarth, Robbie Burns and Noel Hawkins. Their trial begins in the following month. The court cases get national attention in the news. Someone who has covered hundreds of court cases across their career is investigative reporter Dale Haslam.
2: This was a huge media story at the time because of the amount of drugs that were recovered. Because people were absolutely aghast to know, I mean, you're talking about um, the early 90s where, you know, in the 80s, people would take you know LSD and magic mushrooms like the you know the party scene uh, people would smoke cannabis but cocaine wasn't a very fashionable drug it wasn't a very mainstream drug that that that's known like it is known today and when people found out that you know this amount of drugs was was uh, so perilously close to finding its way onto the streets of of, uh, of the northeast of Edinburgh, people were absolutely shocked. During the trial of the importation team, the jury hear that the cocaine
0: is worth more than £100 million. There is an audible gasp in the courtroom. The lawyer for No Hawkins, a man named Kevin Drummond, argues that the inflatable boat sailed ashore by Howarth and Hawkins couldn't possibly have held the weight of both the men and the drugs. This argument soon falls apart when Graham Dick himself took 500 kilograms of salt and loaded it onto a rubber dinghy and sailed it around Troon Harbor. When the trial finally concludes, all men are found guilty. Robbie Burns gets 15 years. He pulled out of the job before Howarth and Hawkins were sent to Spain, but he is still considered a co-conspirator. Noel Hawkins is given 15 years, and Chris Howarth is given 25 years in prison. The judge, does make a comment about the missing man in the room, Julian Chisholm. He describes the gang as pawns in a much bigger game. When arrested, some of the gang members did mention Julian Chisholm. He hasn't been caught yet, still hiding away in Spain. During the trials of the other gang members, an order was made under the Contempt of Court Act, which stopped Julian Chisholm's name from appearing in the press. But the media needed to call him something. This is where the name Mr. X was born. And with his new name, Julian Chisholm watches as the operation he had built was slowly being taken apart piece by piece, gang member by gang member. With the five convictions packed away, Graham now set his sights on the big fish, who was now known by the name Mr X. But before we get to that, months later, it's the 1st of November, and Graham Dick gets a call from a contact. Graham had been looking for the DMRB, the tanker which sailed Haworth and Hawkins, as well as the cocaine, into Scotland.
1: It took us a little bit of time to find out how the drugs got to Scotland. And we were given the name of a vessel called the DMRB. On the phone, this contact tells Graham that the DMRB
0: had just docked in Canada. It's October 27th, 1991. We're in Canada on a road near Chester, Nova Scotia. Canadian police flagged down a truck and ask the driver to pull over to the side of the road. They search the truck and find 3.5 tonnes of cannabis inside. After investigating, the police track the drugs back to a port in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In this port, police find a heavily damaged DMRB in need of repairs. A Canadian police officer named Jerry Preti and a customs officer named Peter McTiernan search the DMRB and question its captain, Francisco Jose Bu Torres was connected to organized crime in Spain, and of course there was a connection to ETA, the Basque separatist group considered terrorists in many countries. But more recently, he had sailed Hawkins and Howarth to pick up their cocaine from South America and take it back to Scotland. Torres is questioned in connection with the three tons of cannabis, but after interrogating him, Canadian police don't have enough physical evidence to charge Torres and are prepared to let him go. But then...
1: I was down in uh, London with uh, my boss at the time, Mike, and I got a phone call from our liaison officer in Miami, and he said that the DMRB had been seized in Halifax. Well, the first thing we had to do was to have him arrested. So after getting the, the phone call, Mike and I went back to the office in London, spoke to David Hingston, who's the Procurator of Fiscal, and sent him the information by fax that he needed to prepare an arrest warrant. Graham had to run through a
0: long line of filing, faxing, making phone calls to get authorization to ask police in Canada to hold Torres. Canadian authorities then received the request to rearrest Torres, and it was just in time too. According to Graham, the ETA linked drug runner was preparing to leave for Madrid. Graham Dick flies to Canada in hopes of getting a look at the DMRB. On board, Graham looks for evidence that will link the DMRB and Torres to Mr X's drug importation. Up till now, the police only suspected that the DMRB was involved. They needed solid proof. When he gets on board the massive tanker, Graham finds two pieces of physical evidence. First, there's a map with markings showing a route along Scotland, through the North Minch and into Clashnessy Bay, where the gang hid the drugs. Even better was that they found Chris Howard's fingerprints on this map.
1: We found a piece of paper uh, with Chris Howarth's name and Noel Hawkins's name and the telephone number. And, um, and that was just gold dust.
0: The note read, Crazy Chris plus Super Noel equals Tom and Jerry. To this day, we're not sure if this was Howarth and Hawkins's nicknames on the boat or some kind of inside joke between the crew and Torres. But the other part of the note, the telephone number would be the most significant. The number belonged to Howarth's neighbour at the time. Graham was now confident in saying Howarth and Hawkins were on this boat. He used the evidence found on the DMRB to apply to extradite Torres back to Scotland. Torres was maybe the most complex arrest of them all. Graham is told by the RCMP, the Royal Mountain Police in Canada, that there is intelligence that there may be a hit on Torres if he's arrested.
1: There were people going to, um had been hired by the Colombian cartels to, to kill Torres. And that didn't surprise us at all because he was so important. He was, he was so important to them and would have had so much intelligence. Right at the very beginning, um, we knew we had a big fish. Um, Torres' first lawyer, or first prospective lawyer, decided he didn't want to take it on because he was scared. He'd been warned. He didn't want anything to do with this guy. And uh, he, he contracted two other lawyers who were well-known, well-regarded criminal attorneys in Nova Scotia. At some stage thereafter, uh, in between the various court proceedings from magistrates' Court to Crown Court, the RCMP received intelligence that uh, there were people going to, um, had been hired by the Colombian cartels to, to kill Torres.
0: And there was suggestion that this hit on Torres wouldn't be subtle in fact, in previous cases, some of these gangs were known to open fire inside courtrooms. So in July 1992, when Graham was able to take Torres back to Scotland, he had to take precautions.
1: We had our own security personnel to look after us. We um, couldn't move without them for, I think it was a week, while the court proceedings were going on. We went to the uh, prison with the RCMP. Alan well, Torres came in the room and <laughs> he didn't look very happy. And uh, we took him downstairs, put him in a car, took him to the airport. Back at the office, the guys were checking all of the, um, uh, the passengers on the flight to make sure there was nothing suspicious. And we were uh, driven out to the side of the plane. We went on board, um, handcuffed the Taurus and went to the back of the plane. And um, we took him back along with uh, a box with all the evidence.
0: In July 1992, Francisco Jose Torres is brought back to Scotland. He spends most of the journey handcuffed to Graham Dick. He appears before the Sheriff's Court in Glasgow, charged with drug importation. One of my favourite details about the trial of Francisco Torres was that this criminal, connected to ETA and organised crime, was brought down, in part, by a woman from Stonehaven whose job it was to be obsessed with handwriting. Catherine Thorndycraft-Pope speaks to us from her home in Stonehaven. She has blonde hair and wears a blueberry purple sweater. A bookshelf is filled with case files and books on suspect documentation handling.
3: My name is Catherine Thorndycraft-Pope. In approximately 1990, went to work for Grampian Police in their handwriting department. Learned on the job for approximately four years. After the four years, I was authorised by the Secretary of State for Scotland to go to court as an expert on the examination of handwriting.
0: When Catherine was brought onto the case, she wasn't told much about Mr X or the cocaine.
3: We were instructed to do this case by the customs and excise in Scotland. And, um, you know, all we were shown was a little bit of paper, like, like three inches by three inches.
0: Her expertise were directed towards the note found on the DMRB, with Chris Howarth and no Hawkins' names on them. Francisco Torres was denying writing the note and also denied knowing Howarth and Hawkins or being anywhere near Scotland at the time of the score. So in order to link Torres to Mr X and the cocaine importation, Graham had to prove that Torres wrote the note. This was where Catherine came
3: in. To be able to prove who wrote this writing, we needed um, comparable handwriting material.
0: In order to do this, Catherine needed verified writing from Torres to compare with the note from the DMRB. But Torres was refusing to give a sample, which he can legally do. But that wouldn't end up being a problem for Catherine.
3: So the next best is everyday known writings that people can speak for having seen this person doing certain writings. Well, um, we got some very unusual handwriting to compare. So, Taurus, when he docked his ship at uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, he had to obviously fill in forms for the customs neck size, all the details about the ship. So, um, these were witnessed, these writings were witnessed by the officer on, on duty that day.
0: There was another piece of handwriting that they could use to compare.
3: In the Halifax detention centre where um, Torres ended up, he tried to cut his throat and wrote a very long, very neat, beautifully handwritten uh, suicide note.
0: Torres survived his suicide attempt. And unfortunately for him, the warden of the detention centre witnessed Torres writing the note. Therefore, it was just more verified handwriting that could be used against Torres. To show us how she did it, Catherine turns to her computer, where she has digital versions of the evidence.
3: Oh, gosh, come on. Ah.
0: It takes her a few attempts, but she manages to bring them up and begins to explain how, like a detective at a crime scene, she examined the smallest details and characteristics of Torres' handwriting. How he writes certain letters, the location of his punctuation and finds things to match with the note found on the DMRB.
3: So what we do, we draw out all the writings and um, note how they were formed, the direction, the heights, the proportions. We get known writings, as I had mentioned, we had the known writings, the customs form, and the suicide note, and then compared as many of the writings as possible. This writing was mostly in, in block capitals, And um, this gentleman who had, whoever had written this note, liked to use inverted commas and even at the same angle. One of the unusual, uh, not, well, not really unusual, but one of the letters, a block A, and I noticed the A almost looked like a block D. It's a very open A. Wouldn't, would be highly unlikely that somebody else would do exactly the same positioning and forming the letters of the words the same. We went through um, as many letters as we could on the note with Crazy Chris, Super Noel equals Tom and Jerry. And on all the writings we were given as the known writings of Torres, we found sufficient writings to go to a high probability that he had written this.
0: Thanks to Catherine's work and the work of Graham Dick, Torres was jailed for 30 years, the largest drug sentence in Scottish history. Though it was reduced to 25 years on appeal,
3: i I actually was very um honored to be doing that case um you know i I was just new into my career and this was a very important case in history and I was just very pleased to be taking part in it and also getting such a good outcome. I think this large um sentencing was really to warn people not to come into places in Scotland they I think they think are or an easy touch, and I think that's why the sentence was so high to warn people you can't just come into Scotland and do this sort of thing.
0: All that was left to do now in Operation Klondike was catch Mr. X. So let me take you back to May 1992 before Torres was extradited back to Scotland. We're in Spain where julian Chisholm is walking around a port with his mum. What he doesn't know is that he's about to be surrounded by police the Spanish authorities had got a tip that he was out in public. They rush in to arrest him, and he reacts by making a break for it. But as he tries to run off, he is tackled to the ground, leaving him with a black eye that can be seen in his mugshot. He was travelling with a false passport under the name Alan Archibald. Uh,
1: He tried to run away. He was stopped by uh, a Spanish policeman. His mum tried to back him up, saying that he wasn't Julian Chisholm. Graham was ecstatic the mastermind had finally been caught. We'd been after him for a long time. We had fantastic cooperation with the Spanish. Absolutely brilliant. Graham immediately began
0: the extradition process, just like he did with Torres. Now, if this was your typical true crime story, just like Torres, Chisholm would be put on a plane, handcuffed to Graham Dick, helpless to do anything as he watches the Scottish mainland come into view. He would be put on trial and given a harsher sentence than anyone in the crew, even more than Torres. But this isn't a typical true crime story. This is Hunting Mr. X, and this isn't how Julian Chisholm's story ends. Julian Chisholm's story ends inside one of the most dangerous prisons in Europe with a notorious French gangster and a prison break. Next time, on the final episode of Hunting Mr. X.
1: It was an old jail and it was well known for people escaping. Um, There was two escapes there in my time. People were like, always wanted to go there because they knew they had a good chance there of escaping. We had to try and look for him, and we did. Nobody understood
0: why this call had been made. Hunting Mr. X is a DC Thompson production from the titles of The Courier and Press and Journal. You can listen to the whole series on all your major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the series so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a review? And for more Mr. X content, you can log on to The Courier or The Press and Journal. Hunting Mr. X is presented and co-produced by me, Brendan Duggan. Original reporting by Dale Haslam and co-produced by Morvan McIntyre.